You're listening to the Evolving Leader Podcast, a show born from the belief that we need deeper, more committed leadership to confront the world's biggest challenges. I'm Scott Allender, co-host of the show, and welcome to a special edition of the Evolving Leader, as today is our season four roundup. So John, as you look back on the last 20 shows, how are you feeling? Well, I'm a little conflicted about how to pick out highlights, given the incredible range and quality of the guests that we've had. I mean, we've covered the war in Ukraine with the futurologist Monica Belasquita, climate change with the philosopher Henry Hsu, and how mindset influences our mental and emotional well-being with the campaign Jeff McDonald. Yeah, I'm feeling the same, uh, but let's pick up a few highlights from what has undoubtedly been a very rich and enjoyable series of conversations. So where shall we start? Well, I love Move by Caroline Williams, which I reread on holiday because not only does she write so well, but the ideas in it are also really inspiring. Yes, her observations that our brains evolved for the explicit purpose of movement was really fascinating and that our development is inextricably linked to movement. In fact, I've started doing movement breaks, as she suggested we do, as a way to stay sharp, and I've actually found it to be really beneficial. Do I seem smarter to you now, John? <laughs> uh, not, not really, but you know, <laughs> keep doing it. The, the Rodolfo Linas um, analogy of the C-square is a really, really powerful one. So we often think that brains are there to think clever thoughts um, and where, you know, yay us, aren't we amazing? We've got these amazing brains and we think clever thoughts with them. But when you look back in evolution to the point when nature was deciding whether brains were even worth the effort because they take a lot of upkeep, you know, they're, they're energy intensive bits of kit. There was a point in evolution when nature was going, oh, I don't know, is it worth it? Is it not worth it? And it came down to whether or not the creature was moving. So these creatures, sea squirts, when they're in their adult form, they basically are sort of two rubbery bags, you know, with two tubes sticking out and they pull in water through one and they spit it out through the other. And they just kind of filter feed their way through life and, you know, don't do very much. In their juvenile form, they're sort of more like tadpoles. And so they swim around the ocean um, looking for the best place to spend the rest of their lives. And to do that, they have a very simple brain, which they use to move away from danger and towards things that are potentially rewarding. And Lina says, well, that is what brains are for. Therefore, informing our movements in the world to increase our chances of survival because they take us towards rewards and away from danger. Um, and he, he had this great quote. He said, movement's too dangerous to attempt without a plan. So, you know, <laughs> moving around without a brain might end badly. But with the, with the sea squirts, as soon as they've selected that bit on the ocean floor, they glue themselves on by their heads. And the first thing they do is they reabsorb almost their entire nervous system. They never have any more decisions to make. So mm. they just figure, I don't know whether they figure it out or not, whether it just happened through evolution, that whole thing goes in the recycling and they never think, they never make a decision again. Um, and so this was Linas's way of saying, that's what brains are for. Brains are not for thinking, they're for moving. And everything that's been bolted on after that, from emotions to, to cognition, everything is just improving those decisions we're making about how we interact with the world and how we move around in it. Another guest that we really enjoyed talking to was Oliver Berkman and his thoughts on rethinking how we use our time. Yeah, I loved his anti-productivity philosophy. Um, and that he said, instead, we should embrace our finitude more honestly 
that there actually is more freedom to be found in that. It's the idea that a lot of the things that we do that where we tell ourselves maybe that what we're doing is making the best use of time or managing our time well, pursuing a productivity system, something like that, that the real motive there is to is to avoid feeling the pain and the discomfort that come with being a temporarily temporarily limited human, right? Because the obvious fact is that if you only have so much time in a life and in a day, then tough choices are required. You can you can you can think it would be wonderful to spend uh, twelve hours a day. Uh, deeply absorbed in your work, say. You could think that it would also be wonderful to spend those 12 hours uh, deeply absorbed in your family life, maybe 20 other different things that would all be meaningful, but you actually have to choose. If we were... um, if we were gods, if we could be sort of omnipresent, we could we could live all those lives at once, but we can't. So being finite means endlessly making these kind of tough choices, and they don't always feel like tough choices in the, in the moment. But uh, there is this kind of built-in sort of tragedy to being human, which is that anything you decide to do, you're deciding not to do other things. You can't know that it's the right choice in the present moment or even in the future. Like you know. And any venture that you engage in, you you can't know that a different venture wouldn't have been more fulfilling or successful or or any of the rest of it. And all of this adds up to a kind of a, a painful situation. And Heidegger and various other people, as I understand them, were simply saying that we um that we go to very great lengths to not feel those high stakes in our lives. We go to very great lengths to continue kidding ourselves that we're working on becoming so productive and efficient that, you know, soon we'll be on top of our lives and we won't have to make these these tough choices. Or for other people, it could be sort of deep procrastination, right? The other end of the scale, right? This, if you, if you're really in love with the perfect idea of the novel you're going to write one day or the perfect, uh, uh, relationship that you're going to be in, then the best way to hang on to that feeling of being in control, of being a sort of god over your time, is obviously not not to launch in on that thing at all, because then you just get to cherish the the perfect fantasy. So, in all these different ways, we're sort of holding ourselves back from the truth of our situation and pursuing all these kind of neurotic ways of of interacting with the world, which are really there to to help us not have to feel this rather tough and unpleasant fact of being of being limited. And so, yeah, to turn it on its head, I think stepping more fully into the reality of our situation and being more willing to face up to those limitations, to the necessity of tough choices, to the fact that you will have to give up some goals and ambitions in order to focus on others, to the fact that, you know, missing out on stuff is just absolutely guaranteed. It's not something to be avoided uh, and a whole lot of other ways in which our our finiteness um, affects our lives it, it's uncomfortable and it and it can induce anxiety and discomfort but it is totally worth it in the end because that's the way that you actually get to make the most conscious choices about how to use your time that's the way to actually get started on the novel that you want to write or the deeply fulfilling 
potentially deeply fulfilling relationship. That's the way to um, let go of this kind of endless stressful quest to get on top of absolutely everything, which which always feels like it might be about to happen a few months from now, but you're not quite at it this moment. And um, so it's it's completely worth it. And it, but it's like, yeah, really difficult because it involves sort of facing unpleasant facts about our situation. So yeah, it is philosophical, but I think it's pretty practical too, ultimately. Okay. So we're going to take a slight detour here, if you don't mind, and open up our vulnerability interview archive. For those of you who may not have heard any of these vulnerability interview clips in previous seasons, our interview series is designed to be a lighthearted and uh, fun time that normalizes appropriate vulnerability as a mechanism for more effective and trustworthy leadership. Okay, producer Phil, over to you. Thanks, Scott. Okay, so let's get started with the question that immediately puts all of our guests at ease. What's the biggest lie you've told at work? Let's hear from Dan Toma, Amy Herman, Rob Cross, and Ranjay Galati. All right, Dan, what's the biggest lie you've told at work? The biggest lie I told at work, in all seriousness, one night before we had this presentation for, for, for the board, we needed to justify why we needed investment for our idea. And we literally made up all the numbers. We were looking at, we were looking at the Excel sheet, putting in some numbers, seeing what the Excel would, would say, and we said, oh, no, that's not ambitious enough. Let's change this. And we've done that from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. only to get it to a right number that looked big enough but plausible at the same time. And uh, the, the following morning, I had to sell that. <laughs> I'm sure you're not the only startup that's ever done that. The biggest lie that I ever told at work, that I love my job. When I was a lawyer, I told them I loved my job at the firm and I couldn't think of any other place I wanted to work. Biggest lie ever. <laughs> I really want to dig into that a bit more, but I'm not going to. <laughs> I love this one. So uh, we used to have a, a ski boat before I moved to Boston and I would disappear out on the lake to water ski with my children. And um, I would be asked, what's that noise in the background? And I would say, it's the air conditioner. <laughs> so <laughs> a boat engine going by. <laughs> The biggest lie I've told at work is a lie to myself, not to anybody else. And the lie was that I'm actually making an impact when I really am not. And, and doing things sometimes that I don't believe are, are, are only helping me and not anybody else. And I try to convince myself that they're helpful for my students and the world at large. When actually they're not. Next, let's hear from Annie Murphy-Paul. Simon Roberts and Stephen Fleming as to what personal development topic they most avoid confronting. I would say the biggest obstacle to my own personal development is avoidance, which is a coping strategy that works until it doesn't because, mm -hmm. um, you know, lots of things must be confronted. Um, and avoidance um, can spare you anxiety in the moment, but it always ends up, you know, blowing up in your face. So, um, I am trying to work personally. I am trying to work on becoming less avoidant, <laughs> which, um, you know, the, the, the problem with that is that I sometimes avoid that work, but. Um, <laughs> um, my white male middle-classness. 
I really need to get to grips with with that and work out how to orientate to to the world that we currently live in in a way that's true to me, but but empathetic, sympathetic to the world as it is now. Uh, um, I think I have this tendency to want to please people far too much at uh, work, and there's always been this uh, advice I was given by more senior people, more wise people saying, the one thing you're going to need to learn to do in academia is to say no um, more often. And I feel like I'm quite bad at that. I say yes to a lot of things and then it can get a little bit dicey with uh, spreading yourself too thinly. Wow. Thanks so much to all of our guests for their candor when confronted by our vulnerability interview. We'll dig into some more vulnerability a little later, but for now, I'll pass back to John. This can't be the evolving leader without a neuroscientist or two in the mix. And boy, did we strike gold with our conversations with the consciousness researcher, Stephen Fleming. Yes, we did. In fact, since speaking with Stephen, I find myself thinking about how we are able to think about what we are thinking about. I do this on my movement breaks, by the way. <laughs> Actually, in all honesty, I am really, really drawn to understanding more about the role of metacognition, our ability to think about our thinking, and how that enables constructive doubt. Metacognition is um, something that we think is malleable. It's not set in stone. Um, And one way we can investigate this is by, first of all, measuring people's metacognitive acuity in the lab. And the way we do this is by asking them to carry out simple tasks where they rate how confident they are at performing that task. And then we analyze the mapping, the match between confidence and performance. And so the intuition is that if you have high confidence when you're right and lower confidence when you're wrong, that's a sign of having good metacognition. And what we found and others have found this as well, that when you um, ask people to practice um, those kind of tasks and now give people feedback, not only on their performance, but also on how accurate their confidence is. So in a sense, try and improve their calibration of their, their confidence estimates. Then this ends up over time, and we've done these experiments over multiple days, over a period of a couple of weeks. Over time, people become better and better at realizing when they've made errors and noticing mm. when they've got the answer right. And what's super interesting about one of the experiments we ran on this is that um, that training effect then transfers to a completely untrained task. So it seems that we're, in a sense, able to boost this more abstract level of metacognition. It's not that we're just boosting your metacognition on this one single task. It seems like we're having an effect more broadly mm. in improving your self-awareness about multiple, multiple uh, things you could be doing. And our conversation with Amy Herman really made me think again about how we see the world with her notion of visual intelligence. Yeah, I think her observation about how often we confuse what we're seeing with what we're thinking is incredibly powerful. Yeah, you know, I've actually started uh, asking my team and other people that question more often. I ask them what they're seeing instead of what they're thinking. Yeah, I think it's really powerful asking yourself, 
and others. Say what you see. Mm. I have a, a great exercise because, you know, bias is one of those trigger words for people. Mm. You know, hello, Florida. People talk about bias and all of a sudden the conversation shuts down or it takes on a whole different tenor. And, and most people, when you ask them what a bias is, they really don't know. They'll say, well, it's a prejudice. And I have this great visual exercise. And it illustrates, I think it illustrates a bias beautifully. I put up two portraits. One is George Washington and one is Abraham Lincoln. George Washington is a painting. Abraham Lincoln is a photograph. And I say, okay, everyone in the class, what do you see? And I say, you know, we call them number one and number 16. Just keep it easy. What do you see? Number one, number 16. And, you know, it's the rare person who says, well, number one's a painting and number 16's a photograph. They'll tell me, very presidential. Lincoln looks exhausted. He looks like he's been through the Civil War. Like, everyone attaches what they know instead of telling me what they see. So we all talk about one versus 16. And then I take number one down, and I put up Kehinde Wiley's portrait of Barack Obama. So you've got Abraham Lincoln and Barack Obama. And I watch the room transform. Some people cross their arms. Some people smile. Some people look really unhappy and some people just roll their eyes. And I say to them, if you were standing here, I said, I just changed George Washington to Barack Obama. What has just changed? Every single one of you in the room has lived through not one, but two administrations of the man on the left. You have skin in the game. I don't care if you like Obama, you hate Obama, you are indifferent to Obama. You have a personal stake in looking at Barack Obama. You have all kinds of things going on in your head. Not so much with Washington and Lincoln. And how you see Obama, the lens over your eye is going to affect how you see Abraham Lincoln right next to him. Mm -hmm. I said, when I have Washington and Lincoln up, nobody in this room, as far as I know, has lived during the administration of those two men. And if you did, tell me what you eat for breakfast, because I want to know who you are. One of our richest conversations was with the moral philosopher, Susan Nyman. Yeah. The breadth of ground we covered in our 45 minutes or so with her was really amazing and particularly relevant to leaders right now, given the rising number of pressing moral leadership challenges that we're all facing. In your book, Why Grow Up, you address the widespread infantilism you feel pervades so much of society. Why do you think that's happened? That's an interesting question because that is not an age-old phenomenon. Um, and it's not even absolutely universal. So in traditional societies still, childhood is not sentimentalized or um, you know, treated with nostalgia. And people yearn to grow up um, as children do. If you're around any children, they're not um idealizing uh childhood they want to grow up because they associate it with agency and strength and the ability to do more and you know learn more and have adventures and and so on uh, i think it started around the beginning of the last century and peter pan is a sort of exemplification of that which did you know was published in, I think, 1906. Um, and as far as I've been able to see, there may be others, but that was the first time that you had this utter idealization of childhood and this idea that the best thing, the best possible thing would be to not grow up. Now, 
I can certainly understand that when, uh, you know, growing up is portrayed, you know, as, uh, you know, a very, very dull, fixed life, um, you know, matter of knowing, being good at business and not being interested in anything else. Um, but what interests me is, is how that became such an ideal. And I think Freud is actually uh, a villain here. I think Freud's, the later Freud, Freud's idea of the reality principle is exactly the kind of view that I'm um, working to undermine. That is, this view that reality is fixed. Basically, it's awful. As, to be fair, he read this the, sort of shortly after the First World War. I get that one might feel that way. I could feel that way now if I, you know, if I let myself feel that way. Reality is awful. And growing up is a matter of losing your wish fantasies and accommodating yourself to the world as it is. All right, so I can see that he's ready again. So at this point, I'm going to pass back to Phil for our second voyage into the vulnerable interview collection. Okay, so back to it, and this is a biggie. The question is, where do you feel most vulnerable in your work? Let's listen to answers from Tony O'Driscoll, Caroline Williams, Azim Azar, Rita McGrath, and Todd Kashdan. Uh, the moment before I step into the vast abyss of the unknown, confident that something cool will emerge. So there's this, there's this crazy, it's, it's, it's what we would call a leap of abduction. You're, you're, you're taking the leap. Um, I'm a big believer in taking the leap, but there's always that moment of it's the oh shit moment, you know. Oh, I, I, I'm literally going to jump in and, and, and hope it works. So it's, it's kind of it's, it's like a roller coaster. It's it's really exciting, uh, but you you have that feeling of vulnerability. And and my and my guidance in my life has always been just do it. <laughs> you know, I'm conscious of it. I'm feeling vulnerable at it, but step in. I noticed yeah. you don't have any legs. Is that you know? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's the problem now. I have to learn to walk on my hands. Yeah, I, I would say that um, uh, General Marty Dempsey, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I had a great opportunity to, to meet him a number of times, and he, he kind of said, uh, "Leadership is stepping into the breach of uncertainty, confident in your team's ability to deal with any eventuality." So it's like this. Uh, you know, we don't know where we're going. We're not sure where it's going to end up. We feel vulnerable, and we're going. Yeah because that's what we do. There's a part in every article, every book where you hate the subject, you hate yourself, you think you're um you think you know nothing about the subject. In fact, um um, I don't know whether you, you can see here um, my mug, which oh, is yeah. now my, my pen pot says I can and I will. That was sent to me by a friend when I lost the will to live after writing my first book, having spent a year writing about brains and going around every labyrinth that I could come across and being experimented on. I just posted on Facebook very dramatically in writer style. I don't know anything about the brain. I, I, so, um, so yeah, usually during the, writing process i feel most vulnerable it's only before and after that i feel okay about the work that i've done 
So <laughs> writing it tends to attract neurotic types. I think. I think there's. I think there's no way through that they call it the the chasm of of despair. Um, that there's no way from A to B without going through the chasm of despair. Yeah. Scott and I are both experiencing that at the moment. Yeah. Or, or we're both writing books at the moment, so we're experiencing oh, that. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah, feeling it's, better it's about the, that. Hearing oh, you say that makes me feel good because I'm a little <laughs> bit in that chasm right now. Yeah, yeah. it's part of the creative process and it's all good when it's over. It's just painful in the, in the mid, mid, middle of it. You know, there's so much going on uh, at the moment and it's hard to uh, necessarily make sense of it. Uh, and so... The, the challenge that I have is that I like to be able to analyze and frame things and, and give things back to people in ways that help them think about it. Doing that with this sort of onrush torrent of, you know, blockchain this and renewable that and metaverse this and opportunity here is quite a challenge. And because my USP is the analysis and the framing, that's something that I have to keep on top of. When I'm embarking on something I really don't have familiarity with. So, for example, I wouldn't know anything about constructing a global supply chain. So if somebody asks me about that, I'm kind of like, that's where I'm going to have to say I don't know. But I'll find somebody who does know. I think it's probably talking about race, gender and sex. I feel... I feel that I feel the pressure of that I received tenure, which I wish everyone had in every field possible, auto plants, um, baseball card stores, everyone had it. Because I have job security, I feel it is, it's my role to speak on topics that people are afraid to speak on. And I know, I know because I get friction. I know um, the risk of putting myself out there as a, a white man who's 47 years old to do that. And yet, um, I feel like it's it's a duty and responsibility, but I feel vulnerable um, every time that I throw an idea out there, even on this podcast that we just spoke on. But I, I will keep on doing it because it's something I value a great deal. Thanks again to all of our guests for being good sports and being so willing to take part in our vulnerability exercise. Okay, John. Thanks, Phil. The concept of purpose as a key strategic idea for an organization has been on the rise for two decades, and it prompted our guest, the Harvard researcher, Ranjay Galate, to question why. Yeah, I really love the way he started with first principles and then questioned the validity of purpose being a given for progressive organizations. People think purpose means is social causes. So purpose has been hijacked, right? So the word is hijacked. It's shareholder value. It's all about shareholder value. Forget about everything else. Other view is it's anything but shareholder value. It's all social stuff. And then you have another kind of buzzword out there called purpose is win-win. Only do it if you can make money doing it. Right? So you see all this kind of happy talk around purpose. And, and, and honestly, I also saw a lot of kind of superficial purpose. There's a reason I call the book Deep Purpose, not just Purpose. I saw a lot of superficial purpose. So into this razor's edge conversation, I realized that this is a treacherous path when you're trying to appease multiple stakeholders. You can't make everybody happy all the time. You're going to definitely have to take from Peter and give to Paul. And when you do, Peter's going to be really upset and Paul is going to be really happy. 
So we hope we've tempted you to try out some of the shows that may have passed you by. Or listen again to those that you enjoyed. And more importantly, we hope you're finding ways to adopt some of the strategies and insights that our brilliant guests have shared. Either way, here at The Evolving Leader, we're aiming to bring you new and provocative ideas and thinkers to help you become the future leader the world needs. So that's our close for season four, 20 shows, 20 amazing people. We'll be back after the summer break with season five with more incredible guests. Thank you, Scott, for being my wonderful co-host. Mm, thank you, John, and to our producer, Phil. So for now, the world is evolving. Are you?